This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. It's really great to see all of you crazy snow-driving mountain Christians. I like it. No. I thought you guys were going to show up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I want to repeat what we just sang, that our desire is to sing hallelujah to the King of Kings, hallelujah to the Lamb, hallelujah to the Lord of Lords and the Great I Am. Father, you have given us the gift of being able to say that from our hearts through Jesus Christ in a way that we can mean it. Father, we want to understand that and mean that more. We yearn for the day, Lord, when we are stripped of this flesh and with everything in our righteous souls, we can sing that for eternity. Father, I pray that this morning you'd bring us one step closer through the power of your word and the, the work of your word through your spirit. Father, you have promised us that you would do this, and for that we say thank you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to start about halfway through Acts chapter 20, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. We're Coming to the end of Paul's life as a missionary, Paul is, is on his way to Jerusalem and then to Rome, uh, but before he left, he stopped in a little town called Miletus, which was about 60 miles away from Ephesus, to say one last goodbye to the elders of the Ephesian church. But leading up to this farewell, Luke records this interesting flurry of activity. It's one of those passages that might seem kind of scattered and random. It might seem like it doesn't fit. Like within nine verses in chapter 20, we'll look at this later, Luke names for us no less than 14 different places that Paul went. Why do we need to know that? Some of it sounds repetitive, like we get it. Paul annoys the Jews and the pagans. Okay, we understand that. We get it. And some of it really begs the question, like, what in the world is that there for? Look real quick just at chapter 20. Look at verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the window from the third story and was taken up dead. What is the point of that? Like, well, pastor, as a general rule of thumb, if someone falls out of a window and dies, your sermon is too long. Is that the point of this passage? Like, like pastors, don't kill people with your sermons. Is that what that means? I, rest assured, it's there for a reason. 
We're going to look at that this morning because this morning in Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, he's going to explain to them the effect that his love for the gospel of grace had on him and his ministry and therefore why he wants them to continue in his footsteps. And what, what we see in this seemingly scattered information preceding this farewell address are, are examples of what Paul says to these Ephesian elders. So with that in mind, let's look at chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, at Paul's address to these elders. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to, the God, to God and to, to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown, that you, shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about Paul's farewell address is this. I want you to notice how he emphasizes his effort and his sacrifice. Just look back real quick at verse 18. Paul said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, he says, but I was teaching you both in public and in private, house to house. Drop down to verse 31. 
He says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And how I commended you all to the to the word of grace, which is able to build you up. He says in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And we know that's a big deal for Paul. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. I've shown you that by my hard work. In this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Savior, Jesus, who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we know that Paul worked building tents in order to distance himself from those people who might sell the word in Corinth. And, and, and it appears that he did the same thing in Ephesus for some period of time, that, that he was essentially literally a leather worker, tanning and skinning and dyeing and, and sewing tents together with, with this, with this letter, leather um, in order to not muddy the water of the gospel that he was preaching. Paul wanted to ensure that the people knew that what he was saying wasn't about getting paid. It was more important than that. But, but Luke points out something about his effort and his sacrifice that, that isn't immediately obvious to us because of our unfamiliarity with geography. Look back at the beginning of chapter 20. Verse 1, Luke says, After the uproar ceased, that's in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And then it lists a whole bunch of names I can't pronounce, and he says in verse 6, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now skip down to verse 13. This is just a whole bunch of lists of places Paul went. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when, we, when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene and sailed from there. We came the following day to the opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. The day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. What in the world is all that about? Why do we need to know all these intricate little details of Paul's travel itinerary? A little perspective will help us understand what Luke is saying. Glance back again. We're going to be reading our Bibles, guys. That's what you do at church. So look back again at chapter 19, verse 21, where we left off last week. Paul said, now after these events, he's talking about being in Ephesus. He said he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also go see Rome. And as we already read this morning in chapter 20, Paul said he knew that he was constrained by the spirit to go back to Jerusalem and that there was suffering and persecution awaiting him at all of these cities. So, so the first thing I want you to realize is that Paul knew. We don't know how he knew and we don't know exactly everything he knew, but he knew to some extent that his life was nearing its end. Now tuck that away for a second. And let me add this to it. Luke describes in those verses we just read, this little trip he made around the Aegean Sea from Ephesus to, to technically he says Greece. He means Corinth. 
and then back again to Miletus, which is really near Ephesus. Chapter 20, verse 3, tells us that he spent three months in Greece. Again, that's, that's in Corinth. And he was spending three months in Corinth straightening out some pastoral issues. But these weren't just any pastoral issues. They were some of the worst pastoral issues going on in Corinth that the whole Bible has to offer. There were men sleeping with all different kinds of women, including their mothers. The rich were, were, were lording it over and cheating the, the, the poor. The, the worship service, services were a mess with people talking over each other and yelling over each other. There was weird, you know, tongue things going on. It was a huge mess. To top it all off, they're all suing each other in the courts for these tiny little grievances. That's just a taste of what Paul walked into. In fact, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul said, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of you who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Remember when you're on car trips with your family and your dad would say, don't make me come back there. That's what Paul is saying. He's telling the Corinthians, I'm trying to be nice. Don't make me come over there. But they didn't listen. But it wasn't just Paul's labor in Corinth that Luke is alluding to. Listen to this. This little trip that Luke alludes to from Ephesus to Corinth and then back to Miletus was 990 miles he made by walking and a little bit by sea. And to cap it all off, that little 990 mile long trip started in the fall of 57 AD and he was back in Jerusalem by the spring of 58 AD. Six months, 990 miles by foot with three months spent in one city. One more thing, just a little icing on that cake. On the way there and back, he wrote 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. Perhaps three of the most densest theological books in the whole Bible. So let's put all this together. Paul doesn't know all the details, but he knows that somehow, when he gets to Jerusalem, his path toward Rome and his execution is going to begin. And it's going to be full of persecution and suffering. He knows that. Just a side note, if the Holy Spirit personally warns you of suffering, you could put a capital S on that suffering. So what does Paul decide to do? Take a little me time to, 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 to try to prepare for this suffering? Does he pull a Jonah and run the other direction? No, listen to this. He decides to use every last drop of energy that he has to make one last trip to encourage and strengthen and admonish the churches that he had planted. Paul's drive was unbelievable. And he's exhorting these Ephesian elders to do the same. He's encouraging them and displaying to them what it should look like to shepherd citizens of heaven. Now, now I, want, I want us to, to stop for a minute and think about a couple of things. There's a couple of things I want to say about this. And the first is this. Right now in this room, 
There are elders who have name tags on, meaning they're already doing it. There's also people that are listening and in this room who are going to be elders. They just haven't been called yet. They don't have a name tag yet. And then there are other people in this room who are going to then be led by elders. I want to be clear to the existing elders and to those who would be elders and to those who will be led by elders. I have no problem, no problem at all requiring a life giving free time forfeiting self sacrifice, self self sacrificing effort from you. I have no problem requiring this. This free time sacrificing, self-sacrificing time and effort from elders. Because that's what elders are supposed to do. Being an elder is not a nine to five. And it doesn't fit neatly in between your hobbies. For those of you who are not elders or are going to be led by the elders. I'm, I'm saying this to you partly so that when you feel like saying, good grief, elders just chill out a little bit. They're doing what they're supposed to. In addition to this, though, Paul is exhorting these elders to be willing to suffer for the gospel like he did. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think elders suffer any more than than other people. I don't think elders suffer in in some special way that other people don't. In fact, oftentimes it's the opposite. This is the this is the issue, though. There is a special damage that is done to a church when elders shrink from suffering. There's a special damage that is done when an elder shrinks from confronting sin or avoiding difficult people or difficult situations. It does a special damage to a church when they refuse to do the right thing, even if it might upset some people. Elders are not like water. They don't look for the path of least resistance. They look for the path that's right. And the church needs to understand that because... That's what your leaders have been called to do. It's a very weighty and glorious calling to shepherd the flock of God that he bought with the blood of Christ. But it's not just the elders that Paul has said these things to. Don't think like, yay, I'm not an elder. (laughs) Elders are called to this lifestyle, but they're called to this lifestyle in part to be an example to the flock. To the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 and chapter 11 verse 1. To the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 verse 17 and Philippians 4 9. To the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 and in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3 through 9. And, 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 and alluded to many more times in scripture, Paul called for the whole church to imitate his way of life. So, brothers and sisters, to put this differently, we must all be aware that the the second law of thermodynamics is just as alive in the church as it is in the natural world. Meaning, entropy causes all of us to seek motionlessness and, and quietness. We lean toward inertness and inactivity. But we are not those who are motionless and we're certainly not those who are quiet. Too often we turn away from serving or sharing the gospel simply because it is too hard work. 
We might lose a day off or miss a game. And listen to me, this, this mindset is rooted far deeper than we think. And I know I'm talking to people who drove all the way to church in bad weather, so you guys can, you know, listen with a grain of salt. Maybe everyone online needs to listen a little closer. How come we can plan and save to take weeks off of work for our own relaxation and vacation? This is how, this is how integrated this, this thought pattern is into our life. How come we can take all this time to plan and save for weeks off of our own vacation, but listen, the thought of taking time off to devote to the kingdom of God rarely even crosses our mind. To work and to save and to plan, to take days off of work, to devote to the kingdom of God, it doesn't even cross our minds. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to take a vacation or a day off or, or something like that every once in a while. I am not saying that at all. I am saying, however, that it's wrong that we so often find it inconvenient to share the gospel or minister to the saints or serve the kingdom while we put a lot of time and energy into creating time for ourselves. When I was a lot younger, and I mean a lot younger, the race that I hated the most was the mile. And, and, and the reason I hated the mile, I'm like a dwarf, very dangerous over short distances. The mile was this race. It was too short that you couldn't pace yourself, but it was too long that you couldn't sprint. And so you're stuck in this thing like, it's like a, a near-death experience for like six minutes. I hated this race. I don't hate it so much now mostly because it's not physically possible, but I hated it back then. <laughs> Picture this with me. Picture a runner getting ready to run the mile. He's got his shoes on. He's got those cute little runner shorts on that make me uncomfortable to look at him. He's ready to go. The starter gun fires. He takes off running. But halfway around the first turn, he jogs off the field over the concession stand, buys a couple of corn dogs and a pizza, sits in the infield, and eats his lunch. Gets up, stretches out a little bit, goes back to where he left off and starts running again. And then sure enough, around the next turn, he jogs off the track out into the parking lot, starts up the AC so he can cool off a little bit. Then he comes back and gets on the track and starts running again. And this goes on and on for hours. What would we say about this runner? Would we say that he doesn't understand what a race is? Or might we go so far as to say he's just lazy? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says to you and I, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance what? The race that is set before us. And we look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, this is his race, endured the cross, he despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, that which we have been commissioned to by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is too important. It is too magnificent. It is too glorious for us not to give everything we have. The kingdom of heaven, it's too incredible for us not to give God our first and our last, not just our last. And the gospel of grace, it is way too important for sinners not to devote ourselves to its spread. That's Paul's effort and his sacrifice. 
every last drop of energy he had to serve the church. But if you're where I think you are now, we need to keep moving. Because there's an important question we need to answer. And that question is, why did Paul do this? Why would Paul serve the church like this with, with every last drop of energy he had? And this is an important question, because if, if I'm right and you are where you are right now, you're probably thinking, I'm, you're probably a little guilty. You're probably feeling a little obligated. Like, well, I guess I'm a loser because I went camping on Labor Day weekend. You're probably feeling something like this. Hear me on this. I do not, I do not want to assuage any godly guilt you might have that would lead you to repentance. I in no way, shape, or form want to say it's okay to be a lazy Christian. I'm not trying to say that. There is guilt that should lead to repentance, the Bible says. However, and this is very important, God does not want your obligation. He says, keep it. He doesn't want your duty. And we certainly cannot pay him back for the debt that we owe. So what I want to do is this. While I don't want to assuage any godly guilt you might have, I do want to. I do want to show you why Paul felt so compelled to want to do what he did. So that you will feel just as compelled to want to do this. Look with me again at what Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 20 and verse 20. At the beginning, this is, this is how Paul writes. So what we can say is, is he's still saying the same thing he started with. He says, you yourselves know. How I did not shrink from declaring you, he says, anything that was profitable. And then drop down to verse 21. He says, I've been testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. He says, I don't account my life as anything. He says, if only I can finish this ministry I have to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then down in verse 26, he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of all the blood of the blood of all. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So what was it? That compelled Paul not to shrink back from testifying this gospel day and night, public and private in, in homes and in halls. Flip back to to chapter 19 and verse 23, where we left off last week. Paul's been in Ephesus for about two years growing this church. And last week where we left off, we saw the Ephesians had brought millions of dollars worth of, of occult books and idols and threw them into this fire. But before Paul left, look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. There's this man, it says in verse 24 and continuing named Demetrius, who's an idol maker. And he talks to all these people there about halfway through verse 25. He says, man, you know that from this business, we have our wealth that's making idols. You see that you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul guy has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that our gods made with hands are not gods. 
And he says, there is danger, not only in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And when the crowd heard this in verse 28, they go into this frenzy. It's this, this crowd mentality. They start shouting, great, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this guy keeps whipping them up. And it continues all the way down in verse 34. But what they recognize that this guy that they put out there kind of as a puppet was a Jew. It says, for about two hours, all these people cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's just chaos because of what Paul was doing. For two years, the, the, the Holy Spirit had worked through Paul, confirming the good news that he was preaching by these miracles that kept happening. And what's happened is after two years, the entire culture now has begun to shift. To get some perspective on the magnitude of what's taking place here, it's going to help us to understand what Paul walked into. Ephesus was where the temple of Artemis was located. And Artemis wasn't just some local deity. Artemis was one of the main deities of the whole Roman Empire. So the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was massive. To give you some scale, the temple of Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon. In fact, it was so incredible that it was called one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. But not only was it massive, the temple of Artemis was so integrated into the Ephesian life that it was also a bank. That's how much wealth this temple had. Just like we think of a bank, people would deposit money into the temple of Artemis and then receive interest in return. It's a huge, huge place. However, slowly, the Christian community began to take a, a definable shape. They're now being called the way by outsiders, and they begin to stand out. They begin to be recognized. Until after a couple of years, the Christians didn't even have to say anything at all. Now they're being called the way. Now their absence from certain events is noticeable. Now their refusal to participate in these cultural rituals becomes recognized. Their love for Jesus, all this starts to stick out. Until it starts to cast a shadow on the whole Ephesian way of life. So the gospel, it continued to saturate these Christians' lives day and night, morning and, and evening, in temples and in, and, in, and in lecture halls, in homes and everywhere else. The way grew until it began to threaten the Ephesian economy. It would be like the gospel having such an impact in Las Vegas that the casinos started to see an unsustainable drop in their earnings. Think about it. For years, these guys have been trying to figure out what's going on. They got, they're like, let's have a free hot dog night and see if that fixes it. And then still, second quarter numbers are down. And then, I don't know, maybe that one guy comes in and says, you know, it's Herb in marketing. I've been telling you for months, he doesn't know what he's doing. We've got to get some fresh blood in here. And so they put, you know, poor Herb loses his job and they put some other guy in there. Still, their, their numbers go down. Until finally, we read at this union meeting, that this leader named Demetrius, think like Jimmy Hoffa starts you know, raising up this crowd, saying, it's the Christians, you guys. And he takes them all to this theater in Ephesus for this big riot. This wasn't just some small group of rabble-rousers. The theater in Ephesus held 25,000 people. 
So tens of thousands of people are gathered in this theater chanting, Great is Artemis, great is Artemis, for two hours. Why? Why does it have this kind of effect on a city? The answer is, it's for the same reason that Paul was so compelled to sacrifice and give everything he had for the gospel. Listen to this. The gospel in Ephesus, Paul had seen it make such an impact on this city that it put an unsustainable dent in its idolatrous economy. The gospel had penetrated so deeply into the city of Ephesus that it altered the most basic principles of a major city. Paul had witnessed the power, not only the power of the gospel, not only changed the hearts of men and women, he had seen it alter a whole culture. So when we ask why Paul didn't shrink back from testifying the gospel of grace, the answer is simple. It was because Paul had witnessed the power of the gospel trample underfoot something as massive as idolatry in Ephesus. He'd seen it happen over and over and over again in city after city. He saw the enemy lose a major foothold in the Roman Empire. Let me, let me try to make this a little more real for you. I know many people right now are somewhere between concerned and hysterical about what's going on in our culture and how quickly it seems to be declining. Allow the word of God to show you a better way. I might ask you how much spreading of the gospel of grace have you done? How many more times have you called your senator or made some political point on social media than you have shared the gospel? Listen to Paul when he says this to us American Christians. Our country does not need better politicians. It needs better Christians. Our country doesn't need more laws. It needs more of the gospel of grace. Our country and our community needs a revival. And, and I don't mean like a tent and snakes and weird Holy Spirit stuff revival. That's not what I mean. I mean like a revival of Christians who are so saturated by the power of the gospel of grace that they cannot help but spread it around. That kind of revival. Paul would tell us that we do not wrestle against Washington, D.C. or Santa Fe but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the very spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he would tell us, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And the weapon he is referring to is the truth found in the gospel. That is a weapon that destroys strongholds. The truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins to pay our debt. The truth that there is something better than the American dream out there. Imagine if there was a march in Santa Fe. Not because there were a bunch of new laws passed. Not because uh, abortion legalization was repealed. 
Imagine if there was a march in Santa Fe because the gospel had penetrated the lives of New Mexicans so deeply that it crippled the abortion industry in New Mexico. That's the power of the gospel of grace. And I could go on. But this shift in culture began in Ephesus with like 12 people. And look at the change it made. Imagine what a hundred plus people at a church like this could do with the gospel of grace. There's one last thing. I want you to look at what Luke tells us a group of Christians like that looks like. Look back at chapter 20, verse 7. If you'll remember, poor Eutychus. First day of the week, when we were gathered together breaking bread, interesting side note, this is the first mention in the Bible of Christians meeting on Sunday. That's the first day of the, of the Roman week. They're breaking bread. Paul goes on and on and on. Verse 8, there's many lamps in the house. And poor Eutychus bails out the window. And then it says, uh, verse 10, But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Why does Luke include this story? Is this the biblical argument that this sermon should have ended 15 minutes ago? No, it's not. What if I were to tell you that Eutychus isn't even the point of this story? Put yourself into the situation to understand what Luke is describing. There's a ton of people crammed into this upper room to hear Paul. And there's a bunch of oil lamps lit which put off a ton of smoke. And, and, and back then, we would call these houses adobe, and they didn't have a bunch of windows because glass was extremely expensive. Even the rich didn't have big windows. So there's these tiny little slots in the adobe. And, and poor Eutychus is sitting in the only small vent in this whole room for all of the smoke and all of the heat to be evacuated through. So he gets overcome. He passes out and falls three stories. Now, here's where you need to insert yourself into this story, okay? It's midnight. Eutychus has, has just taken a header out of the window. He hits the ground, kerplop. He comes back to life, or Paul resuscitates him. It doesn't really matter. We're all standing outside looking at him on the ground. What would we say at that point? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad Eutychus is okay, but you know, I think this is a good time to call it a night, right? I mean, yeah, you know, kids got school in the morning. I got a big meeting first thing. I think it's a good time to, to call it quits. Isn't that about how it would go? So while you're all outside staring at Eutychus, would we say next, well, I'm glad Eutychus is okay. Let's all go back up to the room and have a snack and Paul keep talking for six more hours. What's amazing about this event is not that Paul didn't take the hint when Eutychus fell out the window. What's amazing is verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer until daybreak and departed. And that encouraged them. The amazing thing is that they hauled Eutychus back up the stairs to listen to Paul talk more. 
Here's what I want you guys to hear. A group that is ready to change the culture looks like a group of Christians who can't get enough of the gospel of grace for themselves. Like, come on, Eutychus, quit being dead. Paul has more to say. It was the glory of the gospel of grace that fueled Paul to spend every drop of energy he had. Because it was the power of that gospel, the power that Christ had died to pay the debt for sinners like you and I. That gospel had penetrated the lives of these believers in Ephesus so much that it changed their entire culture. Brothers and sisters, if I could do anything for you this morning, it would be to draw you deeper into the love of the Savior who saturated the lives of both Paul and these Ephesians. To plumb the depths of our sin, to know exactly how depraved we are, only so that we could see the heights of grace go higher and higher and higher. I would like us to know the, the Jesus that Paul knew, to know him the way that Paul knew him, that we could see the beauty and the majesty of the grace shown to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we too would want to forsake the trinkets and the idolatry of this world, the satisfaction that this world gives us in exchange for seeing his power at work in our lives and our culture around us. I'd simply like to leave you with something that you've already heard this morning. It's something that Paul told the Ephesians, or the Philippians. And I want you to know that, that my prayer is that you would hear yourself saying this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness that comes from me following the law, he says. But that righteousness that comes from me believing in Christ. The righteousness that God gives me that depends only on my faith, he says. That I may know him. And not just know him, but know the power of his resurrection. That I may share in his sufferings. That I may become like him in his death. That's how bad he wants to know Christ. Every little part of him. Not just the good parts. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's my prayer, is that we would count everything as loss. Not because we have to but because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I can't thank you enough for the gift of our Savior Jesus. I can't thank you enough for the gift of grace that we have in him. And Father, I, I say all of that knowing full well that I can't even comprehend that gift as much as it is. I know, Father, when we thank you for these things, that we're thanking you for something that, that, that we're, we're not even thanking you what we know. You've given us a, 
a sports car and we think the bumper is pretty. Father, I pray that you would show us and expand in our hearts and our minds in any way possible, whatever means you see fit, whether it be through blessing or suffering, whether it be through trials or peace, however you see fit, Lord, I pray that you would plant in us deeply a love for Christ, a love for the gospel of grace like Paul had, that we too would want to sacrifice, not because we have to, but because we've seen how glorious you are. That we would want to give things up. We would want to spread this gospel because we know in our hearts how magnificent you are. Father, I know you will do this and I know I'll be impatient. So, Father, I thank you for your grace and I thank you for your work. And I thank you that all of this is available for us through your son, Jesus Christ. His death on the cross and his life for us. And that by the power of his resurrection, we too are being sanctified. And so it's in his name that I pray. Amen.